Good morning, church. This morning we're going to be in John chapter 9. Uh, John chapter 9. And don't worry, there's already a couple of folks that have asked me to confirm. Do you intend on reading the whole chapter? And yes, indeed, I do. Uh, I do promise you, though, that I will not keep you at least past your bedtime. <laughs> Please stand with me as we read John chapter 9. And John 9 says this. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva, that he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back, seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, uh, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. The parents, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? 
How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Please have a seat. Uh, There's a word that I had to look up in the dictionary. Scotoma. The word scotoma means there's a spot in the vision field that is deficient or vision is absent. And scotoma can refer to some sort of physical limitation where something in your field of view is absent or can also refer to a phenomena in which something changes right in front of you and you don't notice that it changed. Has anyone had a spouse or a roommate or a family member uh, come into the room and say, I cannot find my iPhone anywhere? or my keys, anywhere. Please help me find them, because I'm frustrated, I can't find them anywhere. And then you go and look on the, in the obvious spots, like the kitchen counter or next to the microwave, and there it is. Did I actually some husbands point at their wives? <laughs> um, all of us, at some point, suffer from scotoma. We have blind spots. We no, don't notice things that change right in front of us. And in It is in this story that there are the effects of scotoma in this story about Jesus healing the blind man. Now some context for for the Gospel of John. It was a promise in the Old Testament that when the Messiah came, he would come healing and teaching and preaching, of course. But that one specific miracle that the Messiah would perform is that he would give recovery of sight to the blind. And so John must note that in the Gospel of John because... John has an express purpose for writing this gospel, which he tells us in chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, where John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John's goal is that you would read his gospel and believe 
in the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And in his gospel, he structures the gospel uh, by a series of miracles and also by a series of I am statements. The I am statements connect Jesus as the Son of God to the I am of Exodus, where Moses meets God in the burning bush, and God declares that he is the great I am. So when Jesus says he is, he is the I am, he's connecting himself to God. He also performs a series of miracles that John records throughout the gospel, which indicates that he is the Messiah that has come. And in John chapter 9, both of these evidences of the Messiah are recorded. Jesus does say, I am the light of the world. And secondly, he performs this great miracle of giving sight to a blind man. At the end of the chapter, he declares his purpose. For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. He's going to show the reader that those who assume that they see are actually blind. And those who recognize their own blindness can actually see. If you acknowledge your blindness, you will see Jesus. If you believe that you see, you will remain blind. Because this is a long passage, I'm not going to go verse by verse through everything, but I'm going to structure the message into four main points. First, the blind man's dependence. Secondly, the seeing man's self-merit. Thirdly, the seeing man's blindness. And fourthly, the blind man's sight. So the blind man's dependence, the seeing man's self-merit, the seeing man's blindness, and the blind man's sight. John tells us at the beginning of this chapter, the blind man is blind from birth. He had never seen a day in which he had vision. He was just blind from birth and he never understood what it meant to see. Now studies claim that up to 80%, I'm not sure you all knew this, of our human impressions are based on our visual inputs. Okay? The, the, the whole construction of us having five senses of sight, smell, taste, touch, and hearing comes from Aristotle. And even he recognized that it seems like for people, for humans, we process visual inputs more than any other kind of sensory input. Supposedly, the number of neurons dedicated to visual inputs in our brains outnumbers the number of neurons dedicated to all our other four senses combined. With our eyes, we process the things that are far and the things that are close, big things and small things, great mountain ranges, stuff that we see in microscopes. We process distance, texture. Now, this man that Jesus encounters is blind from birth, and so given that we process so many of our inputs visually, this is a significant disadvantage to this man's life. Imagine, imagine if I ask you, close your eyes and imagine what a banana looks like. I'm pretty sure you could describe to me what a banana looks like. But then if I let, say, let, let uh, two weeks go by or let a month go by and and close your eyes and tell me, describe to me, what does a banana smell like? I venture to guess you would have very difficult, uh, great difficulty putting into words what a banana smells like. 
having not experienced one for a few weeks. In our modern world, sight might even be more of an advantage to us now than in the ancient world. Think about how many things we process visually, how much we scroll on our phones, how much we do work, how much we communicate with our loved uh, family members and friends, how much we are entertained by our visual inputs, how much we learn things, we watch videos and just maybe don't even have the sound on and just read the captions. And so, in approaching this passage, one of the important things to try to understand, even though most of us are seeing people, is what is the feeling of being born blind? For the blind man in this story, he probably spent day after day at the temple in the common courtyard area, begging for alms because he was dependent upon others to drop a few coins in his jar so that he could live. He probably had little interaction with the outside world because most people didn't stop to talk to him. He couldn't make a living. He was likely ignored and shunned and disdained. Every so often, uh, uh, somebody would drop a couple coins to him because, because they just felt sorry for him. Because he was likely considered a failure at life. This man was a failure at life simply because he was born blind. To be blind is to be completely dependent upon the help of others. And so this blind man was dependent upon those around him who may not have even recognized his worth, didn't want to be his friend, didn't want to be part of his community, but sustained him simply because he sat at the temple and sometimes they felt sorry for him. He was dependent. Now we're going to try to contrast this blind man's dependence with the seeing man's self-merit. Look with me at verse 2. Jesus' disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Now we might often read really quickly past this verse because this chapter has 41 verses and so uh, this is only verse 2. But this man um, uh, was a topic of a case study between Jesus and his disciples. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Now, the disciples had been with Jesus. They watched him love and care for other people. But their instinct isn't to expect the moment that they see the blind man that Jesus is going to reach out and heal him. Their instinct is to make a case study out of the man and ask, who sinned that this is the man's fate, that he was born blind? The assumption is clear in the question. For this man to be blind from birth means that there is some sin attributed to him such that he was born with this malady. I don't think we should go too quickly past this. We've got to talk about it for a bit. The assumption is that there's some, some causal effect for the blindness. That something happened in the man's past before he was born was a sin from his parents because they are such heinous sinners that they would have offspring that this child is blind or this, this guy commit some sort of heinous sin even before he was born. How is that possible? I don't know. But he did that such that he was born blind. For the seeing person, for the seeing disciple, there are several things uh, that just make sense with this logic. 
right? If the man's fate is to be born blind, then there must have been some justice done for a prior sin. It doesn't feel right to attribute God with some injustice that this man is born blind without this man having done something that would cause his blindness. So we want to make ourselves feel better at seeing people that this man is blind because some sin he committed was so bad that it would happen to him. The second, more insidious thing that may come to our minds is it might actually make us feel a little bit better that this man was born blind if he was a sinner, some grave sinner. Because what that means is when I compare myself to the blind man, there was no such grave sin on my part that led to me being born blind. A seeing person does not want the blindness to be attributed to some random chance or to God's providence alone. We would rather it be the man's fault because it makes me feel better that I am not blind because there is no grievous sin on my part to cause me to be born blind. It makes me feel a sense of relief. The logic is blindness is bad. Bad things happen to bad people. This man must have been bad in some way. And thank God I am not like the blind man. Thank God that there is no defect found in me that warranted the fate of becoming blind. To be seeing in this story is to feel a sense of self-merit that somehow these disciples, and as we're going to see, all the other seeing people in the story recognize that they are not dependent upon anyone else. And that feels good. That my energy and time and abilities are mine alone and I am dependent upon no one else. Somehow, in the seeing person's mind, there's a baseline level of uh, righteousness and merit that feels good to us comparing ourselves to the blind man because I am not born blind. Thank God for that. Jesus refutes this assumption. He says, Do not focus on why this man is blind, but the fact that he's blind in order that God's glory might be displayed in him. The beginning of this chapter sets up the contrast between the blind man's dependence and the sense of a seeing man's self-worth and self-merit. But Jesus debunks that whole theory that the, the man is blind because of some sin that happened in his past. He says, do not focus on why this man is blind, but the fact that he is blind in order that God's glory might be displayed in him. In God's providence, he uses the story to show us an ironic point that the blind man actually ends up being the one who sees. And those who see end up being the ones who prove to be blind. We're going to move on to our third point, the seeing man's blindness. The seeing man's blindness. When I use the term the seeing man, uh, I don't uh, use the term in a singular sense. We're going to use the term the seeing man to encompass all the characters in this story who have physical sight. Okay? And as this blind man, or the, the man who is then healed, so formerly blind, encounters each of the seeing people, he encounters the same sense of physical ability to see, but spiritual blindness in the story. 
Okay, we're going to start with the neighbors and the seeing man's blindness. Verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. Uh, I heard it said that this, this uh, chapter is like this mystery, um, uh, sort of a whodunit story, of who healed this blind man. I would counter that and say, Actually, that's not so. The man says right up front, this guy, Jesus, healed me. The mystery isn't so much a whodunit, but uh, why do these people not believe the man who is healed when he says that Jesus did it? The neighbors think the man looks familiar, but they're not sure because his eyes are working now. So this is a man that they pass all the time as he's sat and begged outside the temple. And they passed him to give him alms, or they passed him to just ignore him, or they passed him just because he simply existed. They recognized him, but there's one change in him now, is that he looks like the same person, but he has functioning eyes. And so they ask him over and over, who did this to you? And he tells them that it is Jesus, and simply that Jesus came to him and said, Jesus came to him and put mud on his eyes and said, go and wash in the pool. And that was it. He came back seeing. They saw a man who looked exactly as he did before, except that now he had functioning eyes. And so they looked at him. And then they said to themselves, nah, can't be him. So, in order to avoid an extended debate amongst themselves, they bring him to the Pharisees. They defer to a higher religious authority. Maybe the Pharisees could tell us what happened, and that's what they do. So they bring, us to, uh, the, bring the man to the Pharisees, and that brings us to verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him, they also asked him to confirm, how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see... Same chain of events. The guy just came and put mud on my eyes, told me to go wash, and now I see. And it was Jesus. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And so we also see that the Pharisees cannot recognize that Jesus performed this miracle upon the blind man and healed him. Because Why? The passage knows an important fact. The healing was performed on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath, as you know, was a day when no one should work. No one should do any kind of work, let alone perform a miracle and healing a blind man. And so the Pharisees debate among themselves, saying, uh, if this man is really healed, then this healing uh, occurred on the Sabbath. Okay, so occurred on the Sabbath. But number two, it doesn't make sense because no work is to be performed on the Sabbath. Okay, so if this man, Jesus, performed the work on the Sabbath and actually healed him on the Sabbath, then he's a sinner. And fourthly, 
sinners cannot perform miracles. A little convoluted, right? But the chain of logic is like this. No work can be done on the Sabbath. Since this evidence seems to be that the healing was performed on the Sabbath, that is a sin. That act was a sin. God does not listen to a sinner. And if Jesus actually did this, he's a sinner. And so since God does not listen to sinners, then this act never occurred. And so the conclusion that the Pharisees come to is that no healing was done at all. There's some kind of trickery here. The logic leads the Pharisees to being blind to the miracle that was performed by Jesus despite the formerly blind man insisting that he was indeed healed. Well, you say, does the passage actually say that? Look with me at verse 18. So after this interrogation by the Pharisees, and all the ruminations in their heads about what happened on the Sabbath and what didn't happen on the Sabbath, what was okay on the Sabbath and what was not okay, and was this man really healed or not really healed, etc. Verse 18 says, The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight because they argued themselves into a theological corner and deduced that this man could not have been healed at all. And so the blind man has had to make his case to neighbors. The blind man has had to make his case to Pharisees. And now the Pharisees decide that the only logical thing to do next is to bring in the set of people, the only set of people that could verify beyond a shadow of a doubt that this man indeed was blind, and that is the parents of the man. Going on in verse 18. They called the parents of the man who had received his sight, and they asked him, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We do not, uh, we know, we know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. So the neighbors don't acknowledge the miracle, they're blind. The Pharisees don't acknowledge the miracle, they are blind. Finally, parents come in, and at least they confirm that this is indeed their son, thankfully. At least they confirm that this man was formerly blind, but now he is not blind, thankfully. But then they are confronted with the question, how then does he now see? And to this question, like the others, they dodge. How he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. If you were the parents of a child born with significant limitations and Jesus just came and healed your child, I'm pretty sure you would ask, what happened to you? Who did this to you? Tell me about the series of events that led to your overcoming this limitation. 
The parents just verify that this is indeed their child, that he was indeed blind, and now that he sees. You would think they would ask, what happened to you? And confirm all those details because they would be awfully curious since they had just invested their whole life into raising this child who was born blind into someone who um, at least has a life of sitting outside the temple and begging for alms. So is it the case that they never asked the questions? John tells us no. They probably did ask the questions. But they denied knowing what happened to their son. They disowned him in a sense and put the pressure back on him and said, he is of age, ask him. Why? Because John tells us that they didn't want to be kicked out of their community. If they acknowledged that Jesus healed their son, they would be kicked out of their community, which meant being removed from social life, being removed from their religious life, being removed from their context of family and friends. And so they refused to also acknowledge that this Jesus who healed their son was the one that did it. For all three categories of people, the neighbors, the Pharisees, the parents, there is something, something about their possessions and the relationships and the reputation and their honor that they were not willing to give up to testify that Jesus had encountered this blind man and healed him. The only one that was willing to do so in the whole story is the blind man himself who was healed. But all the other seeing people have some kind of blindness that prevents them from confirming and affirming that this Jesus is the Christ who has come and healed this man. We see that even these small hints at self-merit, the reputation, the honor, the accomplishments, are all blinding agents for the neighbors, the Pharisees, and the parents, causing them not to see their own need for Jesus. Now, many of you know that uh, I've been at Apple for a while and worked on developing batteries. And uh, working on batteries is a little bit, I always say it's a little bit like working on uh, AV. Nobody appreciates it until something goes wrong. Thanks, AV folks. Now, let me tell you about one of the the leading scientists in the battery industry, because you probably don't know about this person since... Uh, since you don't care until something goes wrong with your battery life. One of the legends of the industry uh, rechargeable for, uh, responsible for rechargeable lithium-ion batteries is a man old enough to have served in World War II. He's still alive today. 101, maybe? He didn't make his big breakthrough on lithium-ion batteries when he discovered a new cathode material that led to a fundamental doubling of energy density until about the year 1980, at which point he was almost 60 years old already. In the ensuing 40 years, as you know, the discovery led to a huge revolution in portable electronics and now EVs. And in 2019, the man finally won a Nobel Prize for his accomplishments at 97 years old. The same year that the iPhone 
11 came out, and two years after the Tesla Model 3. The man finally won a Nobel Prize for his accomplishments. And oh, by the way, this guy not only did a lot for the battery industry, but earlier on in his career, he was also instrumental in innovating something that led to the development of RAM, which is the memory in your computer. So you never heard of this guy. What's his name? His name is John Goodenough. I've all thought, what a fascinating name for a guy who is so accomplished in the battery industry and, by the way, the RAM industry. Good enough. This man with a monumental resume in science and technology, simply named Good Enough. This is our world, though, isn't it? It's often how we think that if somehow I can stockpile a list of accomplishments and have enough recognition and status and a list of relationships in a certain community and social standing, somehow in this way of thinking, in this ethos of Silicon Valley, if I can do that, I've stockpiled a good enough life and somehow that lessens the need for a savior and a lord. Somehow I'll feel less sinful. Somehow I'll feel less despicable. Somehow I'll be less in need of Jesus. You know, when I think about that, and I'm sure when you think about that, it doesn't really make any sense at all, right? Accumulating material things, accumulating worldly status and recognition makes us feel good in a sense. And how do we actually transport that good feeling into our spiritual life and, and make ourselves, convince ourselves that somehow that makes us less needy for a savior? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it is, it's something that happens in each one of us. It happens in the Bible, too. You think about the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and asked him how to be saved. And when Jesus asked him to leave his riches behind, he couldn't do it. You think about the, the, the parable of the, of the man who hoards. And Jesus says, all of that hoarding will not save your soul in eternity. But yet somehow those things, that baggage that we try to acquire for ourselves in terms of honor and reputation and status and accomplishments makes us somehow feel worthy and lessens our need for a savior. And so it is with each of these characters in the story. The neighbors, the Pharisees, and the parents. And that is the blindness of the seeing man. But there is one more character that we have to talk about, which is the blind man himself, or after verse 7 or so, the formerly blind man, because it is the blind man who truly has sight. When he is first asked what happened to him, the man called Jesus made, he says, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. Note that he accepts direction from Jesus without any question. The blind man then, when later he is questioned by the Pharisees how a man, namely Jesus, could perform such signs, the blind man says simply, he is a prophet. He acknowledges that Jesus is sent from God and therefore Jesus is above the jurisdiction of any human court or religious authority. That statement led to a heated argument between the blind man and the Pharisees because to him it's an obvious fact that he had been healed, yet the Pharisees continued to disbelieve, as we said. 
The Pharisees even interrogate the man again and again after the parents acknowledge that he indeed has been healed when they say, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. The Pharisees are still stuck on the point that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And so they say, give glory to God by denouncing Jesus as a phony. Okay? They tell the blind man, give glory to God because they believe that Jesus is a phony. And if the blind man will simply say so, he will give glory to God. But the blind man gives glory to God in a different way in his response. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. He doesn't judge Jesus based on any assumption of human expectation or culture or law, but on Jesus, on what Jesus has done for him. He gives glory to God that Jesus made him see. Still disbelieving the man, the Pharisees interrogate again. And the man says, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples also? Now he acknowledges that following this healing, he has become a disciple of Jesus. He listened to Jesus. He declared him a prophet. He gives glory to God for what Jesus did for him. And now he declares himself a disciple of Jesus. When the Pharisees finally reject Jesus and put themselves in the camp of God and Moses and say that they want nothing to do with Jesus, the blind man, or the formerly blind man, responds with, We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He's gone from this meek and mild man who was just healed to a man who is now arguing theological points with the religious authorities. And Jesus is indeed from God, that this miraculous act is only of God since God enabled him. And he puts the Pharisees in their theological corner. Now what are the differences between this formerly blind man and the seeing people in the story? This is a man who knew his blindness and all that it meant, all that that encompassed. He knew his desperation. He knew his dependence. He knew his unworthiness. He knew his need for help. Because this is a man who had nothing, right? He was sitting in the temple day in and day out, getting walked by, who needed the help of others to drop some coins in his little bucket so he could collect alms for his living. He had no other way to make a living. He had no social standing. He was worth nothing. And he was basically a nobody. A nobody. And he knew it. So when Jesus comes along to heal him and to save him, he is ready to accept Jesus as his Lord and Savior because this is the type of person that knows he needs a Lord and Savior. The Pharisees can only respond with a nasty personal insult. You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? You were born in sin, and would you teach us? That actually connects us back to verse 2. Remember when the disciples asked, was this, who, who was in sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And so the Pharisees used that attack on him again towards the end of the passage. 
you were born in sin. They still recognize, relatively speaking, in the Pharisees' minds, thank God I wasn't born blind because obviously he's a grave sinner to have been born blind, but I am not. Therefore, I was born with physical ability to see. What is Jesus' verdict on this situation? When the formerly blind man goes back to Jesus, what he hears is this validation. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Do we consider ourselves blind people in this room? Or do we consider ourselves seeing people? Here in Mountain View, I would say our standards for everything are so high. Even for those of us who are not in the tech world, uh, maybe some of the moms, we place this pressure on ourselves to be picture-perfect mothers with picture-perfect homes, raising picture-perfect children so they might go to the right places of higher learning and land the right jobs and get into the right communities and the right social standing when, they're all, when it's all said and done. Somehow, that, those pursuits feel worthy and deserving of some merit. Work achievement is also important to us here in Silicon Valley because it gets us a certain kind of status, a certain kind of lifestyle. The right big company, maybe driving the right cars, joining the right wine clubs, investing clubs, talking about hobbies and investing in tech and business and blah, blah, blah with the right people. Because we get that taste of success, we start to imagine that we're actually pretty decent people, not needy or desperate or poor in spirit. We can become like the Pharisee who said, thank God I am not born like that blind man. Those kind of people need Jesus, but our kind of people are basically decent, right? Our need for a savior diminishes the more that we think we are decent, the more that we think we are somebody. This unfortunately is often what Silicon Valley is about. It is our ethos. Now let me ask, there are some 49er fans in here, right? Oh, all right, who's the GOAT of the 49ers? I heard Montana, Montana, okay, all right. Rice, okay. All right, I'll talk to, <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, Montana and Rice I'll accept. Um, and then I had a conversation with uh, uh, one boy in here yesterday who was really excited about Christian McCaffrey today. Anyway. True story. Recently, some friends and I were checking out a sports memorabilia store when the clerk came up to us and said, hey guys, today, Jerry Rice is coming. All you have to do is wait 45 minutes. He's going to be signing footballs and jerseys. Just hang out here for 45 minutes. You're going to meet Jerry Rice. It's with uh, me and four other friends. And so one of us, his name's Chris, said, 
I have to meet Jerry Rice. He grew up in San Francisco area. And he said, I'm going to, I got to stay. I'm going to wait that 45 minutes. going to get an autograph from Jerry Rice in a picture. And the other four of us, after deliberating for some time, said, uh, we're just going to go get some pho, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so we said, Chris, we'll pick you up after lunch. Swing back around, pick you up. And so that's what we did. We wanted to go get some pho. Came back to the store. Uh, during lunch, Chris had sent us a picture of him and Jerry holding a signed football. After we picked up Chris from the store, he was on the phone with his wife, trying to explain to her why Jerry is the goat <laughs> and why he had just spent $550 on a football. Okay. Less than two decades away from the NFL, Jerry Rice wasn't worth 45 minutes of waiting for most of us. I once heard in Silicon Valley, if your net worth is $10 million, guess what? You're still nobody. We can get to the highest universities in the land. We can get to the most admired companies in the world and climb those ladders. We can raise kids who become virtuosos. We can raise kids who become athletes. And actually, some of us in this room have accomplished some of those things. But all those things amount to zero merit in the kingdom of God. When we add up all that accomplishment and all that standing and recognition, it doesn't matter whether you're intelligent or athletic or accomplished. When you add up all that stuff, we're still spiritually bankrupt and spiritually nobodies. At the core of it, we're just needy and dependent people, sinners who need God. And John wrote his gospel so that you might believe in Jesus and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you recognize your need, you can see him. If you believe that you have some merit of your own accord, then you are still blind. When we picked up Chris, another thing that happened was that he said there was a man in line next to me who when he met Jerry, he said, Jerry, do you know Jesus? And Chris was like, this man was really bold, but the thing that the man recognized about Jerry Rice is no matter who you are, no matter what status you've attained to, you are in need of Jesus. The good news for us is this. When Jesus walked out of the temple, he noticed the lone man that everyone else walked by all the time without stopping or talking to him. Jesus cared for him. Jesus caused him to see. And so when Jesus died on the cross for sin and rose from the grave, to give new life, he did so for all who would believe in him, including this man who was formerly blind but now could see. Church, I ask you, see your Savior this morning. Let's pray.